Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This is a Q&A episode as we are in between series right now on the podcast, and it is with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John before Peter Lightheart rejoins the podcast in a couple of weeks. If you are not already subscribed to the Theopolis Blogcast, we encourage you to do that. Those are audio recordings of our written articles on our website, and we will be adding more episodes to that podcast every week. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers answering your questions. All right, so to begin, we're going to look at a couple of questions and and kind of put them together. These are two different questions that were sent in. Um, One, I'd love to hear a brief discussion on what the scriptures say about the church offices and how we should understand the age requirements for each. And then a a separate question was sent in uh, similar. Was Timothy an unusual case? And uh, are older men most preferred for eldership? What are y'all's thoughts on that? Well, I mean, just by way of clarification, initially, uh, as far as I'm aware, church offices is mentioned. I mean, the requirement of age is on an elder, isn't it, in um, Scripture? I'm not aware of the same thing being said of deacons, but I could be, I could be wrong on that. Um, but we, we're, we're basically talking about elders here, aren't we? But there are all sorts of ways to approach this. Um, this whole question about church offices, I, I, I'm taking taking these two questions together. They're mainly about age requirements uh, for the offices. But the, the question about church offices and what exactly the Bible or the New Testament uh directs us or gives how, how much direction it gives on these offices. It's a huge question. I mean, there's the use divinum kind of position of the old Scottish Presbyterians and others, uh, that there is this uh, ironclad, uh, you know, set of offices and, and very clearly delineated in, in the New Testament. Um, and then on the other other end of the spectrum, there are those like the Plymouth Brethren who, you know, are, are much more looser. Even Lutherans uh, basically have one divinely ordained office, the minister, office of ministry. And the other offices will depend on, uh, you know, time and place and circumstances and culture and all that. Um, and somewhere in between there, I think, is, is the truth, is that the scriptures give us um, designations like elder and overseer, bishop and minister and servant and deacon, um, but don't really outline anything like a book of church order for us. Uh, that is left to our wisdom, I think, um, so that I'm, I'm probably more inclined toward the Lutheran view that the ministry is, is an important or the most important office and the other kinds of rulers in the church like elders and deacons are somewhat more fluid about how we deal with them, how we treat them. Um, so, I mean, so in, in that kind of answer, I think where I'm going with it is that um, rulers in the church, especially 
elders. Let's say we have ministers who are, you know, 30s and 40s. But elders, if we're going to go with the Presbyterian model, which I think is largely accurate, elders then are advisors to the pastor and also overseers over the flock and have a, a shepherding kind of role, then those men ought to be older. I mean, the word elder, presbyteros, uh, in Greek means an older man. So we're talking 50s, uh, generally speaking. Um, so, and if if pastors are going to be younger in their 30s and 40s, then they need to be surrounded by older men so that in in council, in session, as we say in Presbyterianism, you'll have maybe younger pastors surrounded by three or four or 10 or whatever elders. And that kind of ruling council gives a lot of balance and wisdom to whatever the church is going to do or whatever the church is going to, uh, yeah, what the kind of direction the church is going to take, kind of discipline the church is going to enforce on its members. We could also consider the way that in the Old Testament priestly service, there is an age expectation for those entering into service um, at the age of 30, um, which again, we see in the ministry of Christ, which he begins at the age of 30. That age would seem to be um, a mark between childhood and young adulthood and that point where you're entering into greater level of responsibility. And we see a number of prudential um, encouragements within scripture. For instance, not having um, a recent convert established as an elder, lest he fall into the snare of the devil and pride. Um, so there are a number of prudential principles. There are patterns from the Old Testament that we can learn from. There are examples in scripture that we see of um, church office, and then also perhaps exceptions to that rule in the case of Timothy, where he might, depending on how we work out the chronology, be younger than one would usually expect. We see on a number of occasions he's told not to let anyone despise him or um, people instructed not to think less of him. And so maybe we could see it that way. In the case of Timothy, I think it's also worth considering the way that elders and deacons, or in this case, I think an, ap an apostle and his assistant would relate. So Timothy, as he comes, comes as the son figure relative to um, Paul. And that gives him a particular character that is not typical of a young man in that sort of office. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um... And the first Timothy 4, 12 passage, let no one despise you for your youth. Um, if you do the numbers, like Alistair just suggested in terms of the chronology, he's going to be around 40. Uh, so this is not a 20-year-old. And as Alistair just mentioned, he's probably spent a good deal of time also as an assistant with the Apostle Paul. It's uh, helpful to remember that uh, when... Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, rebels against the elders in, uh, in Israel after his father dies. And he, remember, he's he going to set up his own little kingdom. He listens to all the younger men and not to the wise older men. And Rehoboam is 40 years old there, and he's called a youth. He's called a young man. So in the scriptures, uh, <clears throat> you become an older man in your 50s. Uh, and I think that's important. One, one of the 
one of the, oh, wow, uh, how do I say this? Um, it's discouraging to me. Uh, it's rather kind of shocking in some ways to see so many church plants being started these days, and they will uh, appoint and, and ordain elders who are in their late 20s and early 30s with no older men, no real elders being present in the council, in the assembly, in the session, as Presbyterians call it. I, I don't think that's really good for the church at all. I don't think that's healthy. So even Alistair mentioned Leviticus and the Old Testament uh, arrangement. So men became priests at 30, became Levites at 25. But then you also had the elders in the gate who did the adjudication of hard cases and other things at the gate of the city, uh, let people in, uh, expelled people. And those were elders. They were older men. And they often sat together with the priests, remember, uh, to to judge various kinds of issues and people. So you have a good combination of the older, older wise men with younger uh, priests, ministers, so to speak. Um, and that's actually the model for Presbyterianism. And I think that that works really well. Um, it's the same model, by the way, that you have in the military, in most militaries. So when I was a lieutenant uh, and even a captain in the army, I had sergeants who were much older than me, uh, who were part of my staff or part of, you know, um, just with me all the time. And there, there was plenty of times when I, I was greatly helped with their advice and wisdom, uh, even though I had to make the final decision about certain matters. That, that is, that is kind of, that's the way human life works. That's the way uh, society works. And it works that way in the church too, or maybe even it flows out of our understanding of the church. Maybe the culture that we're used to is a result of the church functioning like this and having an impact on the rest of, uh, uh, you know, the culture, military and, and government as well. Well, one thing we could possibly touch on is um, the lists of criteria attached to leadership in the church. Um, I think the question said, if I recall it, what about the requirements of the age of a leader? And I guess we could discuss, are these hard and fast requirements that we read in, say, 1 Timothy 3 or elsewhere, in that you have to tick every box on this list? And so if you're not married, you're excluded. If you haven't got children, you're excluded, etc. Or are these kind of recommendations, if you like, that the ideal candidate or leader would have, but aren't requirements, quote unquote, in, in that sense. So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that particularly. Um, great question, James. Um, you mentioned First uh, Timothy 3, 2, husband of one wife, in the Greek, a man of one woman or a one woman man. I've never taken that, and the church has never taken that to mean you have to be married in order to be an overseer, whether that overseer is a minister or an elder. So I don't, I don't know. By looking at that particular clause and then thinking, well, that's not an absolute requirement of, does that then impact the way we look at the other requirements that are listed? 
that's a good question. I think another thing to bear in mind, which touches on some points that Jeff made earlier, um, the fact that this moves with the grain of reality itself. Um, in scripture, we read of the um, unfortunate character of a society that's ruled over by women and children. Um, that may be something that we rankle at, particularly within the modern age, but there's something about the natural grain of society where older men will be the ones who have particular power and oversight. And when the church and other organizations start to diverge from that, their whole character will change. And one of the things that I think we do see within the church when um, it veers from that, the church starts to be seen as something that gives authority and to people who don't necessarily embody that. And so increasingly um, in that sort of situation, there is a tendency towards unhealthy forms of authority. Um, so we might think of the young man who, because he does not have the wisdom and the authority that comes with age and the honor that is accorded to that, can end up throwing his weight around in really unhelpful ways because he's not got the more general recognition and honor that he would have if he were 20, 30 years older. And so when the church starts to go against that pattern, you'll have the older people within society, those who have weight of experience and honor and status and standing within the society. Um, when they're not actually represented in the leadership, the church will start to have a different character relative to the wider society. And I think we need to be aware of that. One of the reasons why these principles are given to us is because it helps the church to function as a weighty institution within a society where you need people of weight um, to lead organizations. When you have novices, people who do not have lengthy experience, when you have people who do not convey authority by their presence alone, um, you'll end up just with a weaker a church that cannot um, stand over against the society and speak with weight to it. Yeah, and related to that, Alistair, I, I think at least, is just the general tenor of Timothy, of Titus. Um, it seems to me that Paul is particularly concerned in these letters about the church getting a bad name. You know, and so he wants elders to be beyond reproach. He wants um, uh, servants and their masters. He wants servants to adorn the doctrine of God and young women to behave um, well so as not to cast um, a bad light on, on the church and, and so forth. And it seems to me that the um, exclusion of a novice in, again, 1 Timothy Free, I guess, and the the commendation of an older an older man is, I think, the idea that an older man has kind of proved himself, I guess, and shown that he's not going to be a liability who is going to cast the church in into um, in a in a bad light and and to be found in, in disrepute in in some way, and that, that just seems, I think, to me at least, to be a large part of of these epistles that we call pastoral epistles generally. Paul is, I guess, an older man himself. And I get the feeling he wants the church to be in a, a safe pair of hands. And 
all the criteria that he has aren't particularly flashy, if, if you like, you know, sober-minded, self-controlled, hospitable, not, not a drunkard. The, these, they're not kind of, you know, great, what the world might see as leadership characters, uh, high energy, you know, very charismatic, etc. They're kind of basic criteria that a lot of elder men have because they've proved that they're not a liability in, in, in the same sense as many younger people can be. There, I think our focus, as you say, the, the term leader, I think, is part of our problem. We tend to think of um, the pastor as a leader and someone who's dynamic, charismatic, someone who has a real a sort of presence that people want to fall behind in a way that maybe is not appropriate to what the scripture actually teaches concerning um, such an office, where the overseer is more of a steward, someone who is a servant of God, representing the Lord as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. And that's not a flashy role. It's a role that needs stability, um, security, responsibility, all these um, characteristics constitute a safe pair of hands. Um, but you're not necessarily wanting someone who fits our current ideas of what a leader is. Um, yeah, those are both good points, James and Alster. Um, <clears throat> just Paul's care for the church. He wants the church to have the kind of men uh, that are going to give it some weight, some um, uh, some respect, uh, in, in the broader culture. But also uh, remember there's this there's this mystical connection between uh, the leaders and the led, uh, to use that word, or the stewards and those who are being or the shepherd and those who are being shepherded. And that comes out at the end of First Timothy 4, where Paul, it's in the context where Paul says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. And then he basically says, you know, act like an older man. <laughs> um, your love, faith, purity, uh, be be mature. And then at the end, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers, which is a shocking statement to some people. I remember years ago, someone came to the seminary here in town and preached on this passage in a, in a, uh, lecture series uh and they had to they had to have uh, uh little uh sessions breakout sessions afterward to calm people down because what he basically said was some the salvation of the congregation can depend on their minister and how he behaves how he acts how he speaks that's how tight the connection is well that's what paul is saying here so whatever Whatever the requirements are for the office of a minister or an overseer, it's a pretty serious thing to have the wrong sort of guy in that position over the congregation. All right. So next up uh, in this uh, question and answer session, what is the significance of the Ark of the Covenant no longer being included in the temple complex after the Davidic covenant? How is it possible to perform the Day of Atonement without the Ark? From what we gather historically, I think it was performed 
the ritual of the Day of Atonement was performed using the foundation stone of the Holy of Holies. And so the Ark is absent, but there is still a site where it would have stood. And it's upon that site that the ritual is performed. And in this case, it, it may be worth thinking about what did the Ark of the Covenant represent? As we look through scripture, in several different parts of the Old Testament, we read of um, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, and the cherubim are above the um, Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. It is a sort of throne, and the Holy of Holies is a symbolic throne room. But as we go through um, Solomon's prayer concerning the temple and other places like that, we see that the Lord's throne is not locally situated on Mount Zion in the way that um, some might think about it within a pagan society. No, this is the place where the Lord has placed his name and people will pray towards the temple, but the Lord hears from heaven. There is a sense that this is a symbolic representation of the Lord's presence. It is not actually the Lord being contained within this um, cube of the Holy of Holies. And so that, I think, becomes even more evident when there is no actual furniture um, representing the throne within the Holy of Holies, when that room becomes an empty one, representing, in some ways, um, the fact that the Lord cannot be contained in um, temples made with hands. Um, that physical temple represents the Lord's special presence in the midst of his people, but the Lord is not contained within it. Rather, it's the place where he has placed his name, he acts within it, and we have um, the broader um, sense of, well, you can pray towards Jerusalem, the place of God's special presence, but ultimately, even when the temple is destroyed, Daniel will pray towards Jerusalem, um, but there is this sense that that is really um, related to God's higher throne, the throne in heaven. Do you think, Alistair, that this has something to do also with uh, uh, the reason for the exile and that the Jews came to treat the temple and the ark almost as idols? Um, and so God was going to destroy them just like he did the golden calf. Um, of course, the temple is destroyed and it's, it's reborn, it's resurrected later, but the ark um, is never rebuilt. And I wonder if that's just part of the lesson to the Jews uh, about their, uh, their idolatry. Yes, I think that's correct. Uh, that's definitely something that we see within Jeremiah's temple sermon in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, a very strong challenge to the way that the temple had come to operate. And in Ezekiel, in his vision in chapter 8 and following, we see, as it were, the Lord's presence departing um, on the throne chariot out from um, the Holy of Holies, out from the temple, out from Jerusalem. And it seems to me that the fact that we do not have the same issues with idolatry after the return. There are some issues that we see in the later prophets, but um, for the most part, that problem was one that pre-existed the exile in its strongest form. Um, 
part of the chastening of Israel that prevents them from um, falling into some of the same traps of the removal of this um, symbol of the Lord's presence within a localized um, spot. And so the temple increasingly, um, it's, there's an absence at its heart, an absence that points to the fact that the Lord cannot be con contained within it. And that is a great challenge to idolatry, which is throughout the pre-exilic prophets, that is the presenting issue for Israel. Right. And Alistair, you mentioned the, um, I think, Jeremiah 7, the, the kind of the sermon where people are saying that the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord and, and so forth. And it's in, where is it now? Um, Jeremiah 3, just a few chapters beforehand, when the, the same thing is said about the ark, isn't it? Um, where are we? Verse uh, 16, when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. And then it sort of continues at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it. And, and so the kind of the disappearance, if you like, of the ark is associated there with kind of all Jerusalem being filled with God's presence and, and the nation's streaming up to it. So there's definitely uh, that sense of, of progression and, and travel in, in what's going on here. All right. So next up, we have uh, a couple of things here in the book of Acts. In Acts 23, did Paul act in a way contrary to the exhortations of James' epistle? Okay. So Paul insults, uh, he insults someone for their hypocrisy and only apologizing because it was a ruler. And then he intentionally sows discord among two political parties in order to gain an advantage. How does that work? Uh, looking at Paul's example there with the book of James, which we just discussed. Well, I don't think that Paul's comment here is necessarily a curse. It is a, a statement about um, God's punishment of, uh, for the offense of striking him. Um, so in other words, God is going to strike you uh, just like may God strike you. Um, so he's pronouncing a judgment, not formally cursing him. Um, in other words, he's saying, well, it's you that God will strike uh, even though you've struck me. Um, so I don't think this violates uh, James chapter three, uh, in terms of what, uh, what Paul is saying. Um, and then the response, of course, from those who stood by that Paul is reviling God's high priest. And Paul says, I did not know brothers that he was a high priest. That is, that is a very interesting statement there because apparently this is Ananias and there's no way that Paul didn't know that he was high priest. So, I mean, I've been tempted to take this in a kind of sarcastic way. And Paul is not uh, afraid of sarcasm. There's plenty of sarcasm in his epistles, especially 1 Corinthians. Um, so, um, so I don't know what to do with Paul's statement there. And we could take it as a simple, humble 
uh, apology. Hey, I apologize. Uh, I didn't know. Um, and it stands written that you shall not speak evil of the rule of your people. Um, that's certainly possible. It's also possible that this is a sarcastic kind of kind of rebuke as well. Um, and I'm not really sure how to take it. I'd be curious what you guys think. Seems to me another possibility is that, I mean, we have questions elsewhere whether um, Paul had problems with his sight. Um, and this seems to be a relayed um, instruction from Ananias to that he should be struck by those near to him. And so maybe Paul does not see clearly where the instruction came from. And his response has a prophetic force to it, but he does not realize who is the true, um, who was the person who was guilty and of instructing him to be struck. And so I, I wonder whether his response is saying, this was not a purposeful remark against the high priest. He said what he said, and that statement stands, but, and he acknowledges the principle um, that it was not actually directed against him as a statement against the high priest. It was a statement against the person who instructed for him to be struck. And in fact, that turns out to be the high priest. Sure. Yeah, that's, cer that's certainly possible. Um, and yet, given the circumstances here, that it, it's certainly possible that he's feigning ignorance uh, to demonstrate that he can play this game too. He doesn't owe anybody a straightforward answer, especially to those who've shown themselves, you know, like the Sanhedrin here, the council, more committed to power than to truth. It, it's a difficult passage, but the, the question asked if he violates James chapter three, I think that's where the questioner was thinking of and cursing. And I don't think that's the case. Even, even his statement, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And God is going to judge you. And even the reference to a whitewashed wall. Well, that's not uncommon in the scriptures, especially in the gospels. Jesus talks about the Pharisees and scribes being whitewashed tombs and, and certainly brings indictments similar to this against them. So I don't know that this is some sort of uh, high-handed sin on the part of on the part of Paul. As for his little scheme here about dividing the Sanhedrin, well, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's awesome. It's uh, very cagey. Uh, and when we went through the book of Acts, uh, we notice how many times Paul is able to, to, to wisely, to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, to wisely be able to negotiate some of these very difficult situations um, in ways that um, av avoid, of course, him sinning, but also, um, you know, cause him to be released, cause him to be uh, freed from whatever situation he's in. So I don't see his, his uh, dividing of the council to be anything what, but just brilliance. Yeah, I, I see that as, as brilliant as well. I mean, obviously, in context, these two parties are 
as far as we can tell, they have taken their stand against Paul and against the gospel. And it seems then consistent just with the way in which God very frequently acts in the Old Testament. So rather than getting Israel to destroy all sorts of enemies, very often they are turned against one another. There's confusion in the camp and, and, you know, the Midianites start going at one another or perhaps God will cause there to be a rumour that something has happened and then some king will flee in, in terror or something. And it just feels to me consistent with the way in which God gets um, his enemies to defeat themselves and actually very wise in the present day and age as well. There are so many of uh, so many anti-Christian philosophies, seems to me at least, in the present day, which are shot through with inner tensions and turmoil. So, for instance, the relationship between um, various kind of gay activists and various transgender activists who almost want to define homosexuality out of existence because same-sex same attraction can be seen as um, being in the wrong body or something like this. And so there are these kind of deep divisions within God's enemies in various schools of thought, which I see is very wise to seek to exploit um, as, a, as, a, as, a Christian, um, uh, as a Christian voice. It would be helpful to distinguish between um, these sorts of practices, and I agree with James and Jeff that these are wise actions, and this is shrewd and cunning on Paul's part, but this is rather different from many of the things that would um, constitute intentionally sowing discord. Um, first of all, in this situation, there is already discord. And Paul brings that to the surface and highlights the disagreement between these two parties and exploits it in order to um, escape the, the trap that his enemies have set for him. Um, also, when we're thinking about insulting someone for their hypocrisy, it's rather different from a prophetic statement of condemnation or an indictment, which is what Paul seems to be bringing here. Um, it's not for the sake of just strong being able to insult someone and badmouth them that Paul speaks in the way he does. Rather, someone has acted against the law of the law of God and is acting in a way that is um, entirely contrary to justice in a context of a court. And so these, I don't think, are examples of just um, straightforward insulting or someone who goes out of their way to sow discord things that we have warned, that were warned about many times in scripture, not least in the book of Proverbs. So I think we do just need to recognize that there are all these sorts of distinctions that we can draw between the sorts of things that Paul is doing here and the sorts of things that were warned about in the wisdom literature, in places like James and various other parts of the teaching of Christ, for instance. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.